0: Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall.
1: Hello and welcome, everyone, to today's podcast. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall with MarketScale. And thanks for joining Voices of E-Learning. We're really excited about today's guest from Effective School Solutions we've got the Vice President of District Partnerships, Mike Roseman. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm
0: doing well, thanks, JW. Appreciate you having me on.
1: Absolutely, and to get started, if you could just give our audience a little bit of background on yourself and effective school uh, solutions, and then we'll jump into some questions. Sure. Uh, So I've been in education for about 20
0: years. Originally did my master's in education and my teacher and credential. I've been at ESS for two years now, serving as vice president of district partnerships. Before that, spent 14 years at Adventum serving in a variety of leadership roles in that organization. At ESS, put simply, we partner with districts to implement mental health programs that enable students to be maintained in the least restrictive environment and have an impact on grades, discipline, and attendance.
1: And that's really the foundation for successful learning. So I'm excited for today's uh, conversation. Let's start out with, um, give us the state of student mental health programs pre-COVID to start.
0: You know, I think it was kind of like the wild, wild west um, out there. You had some districts that were doing an excellent job with student mental health. You had others who were maybe supporting students um, at specific tiers really well. Oftentimes, when we went into districts and did some initial consultations, what we found was almost that there were two false choices that districts were choosing between. One is, en masse, they were providing what we would call like random acts of therapy, um, which is not designed as a disparaging term at all. It's essentially trying to throw all of your resources at the challenges that you see in the building. Um, But oftentimes it's kind of like a reactive and almost serving as like an emergency room, which is preventing you from doing proactive mental health supports. And so if random acts of therapy aren't working out, then the alternative is to send students to out-of-district placements. And added district placements serve a purpose. Um, They enable kids to get the clinical care that they need, but oftentimes the challenges are it's a more restrictive environment, um, it's costly for districts, and students oftentimes are out in kind of, you know, in almost like perpetuity and don't necessarily have anything to step down to. So at ESS, what we're trying to provide is an alternative to bridge that gap between, you know, your random acts of therapy and the decision to send students out to educate kids in district as well through therapeutic supports.
1: That makes total sense. And to give our audience a little uh, scope on uh, this, you know, universe, what what are the percentages of mental health challenges um, for children and teens that, that, that are experiencing th- these challenges? Yeah, so even pre-COVID, uh, mental health
0: incidence rates and uh, severity were already on the rise. Um, the statistics that you typically see from like NAMI, the National Alliance uh, on Mental Illness, would be that 20% of students live with a mental health condition. But it's not just that. It's kind of the array of challenges and the complexity of those challenges. So as an example, 11% of kids have a mood disorder, uh, 10% have a behavior or conduct or disorder. have an anxiety disorder. You even look at it in students on the autism spectrum and 83% of students on the autism spectrum have a co-occurring psychiatric diagnosis. So really complex mental health challenges. And of course, we'll get into that, but exacerbated by COVID-19.
1: Absolutely. And before we get there, one more question. Sure. Uh, You know, obviously this is not just a a problem for schools and districts uh, that they're re- fully responsible for. But what what is the role of schools and districts to play or what role should they be playing in student uh, mental health programming? You know, I, I think schools have,
0: in some ways the most critical role to play um, in, in mental health. Obviously, if you look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, psychological safety is pretty uh, important to unlock students' potential, and that's really where schools can come in. Um, you have a lot of kids who are coming to school with traumatic background and already intense um, you know, baggage, so to speak, and schools can really be that, that safety net for them, those safe places. So it's really, really critical. I think the only, I don't know if I want to use the word positive, but like the only positive outcome so far of the of the pandemic has i think been this reprioritization in recognizing that like bloom's taxonomy is really important and differentiating instruction but that maslow comes before uh, bloom and that you really need to focus on student mental health Um, it's as important as any academics if not more uh, for students especially during this time
1: Absolutely. And and I was just kidding. I got one more question that you made me think of before sure. we get into the pandemic. Um, Pre-COVID, what what were the most common challenges that were facing schools and, and how were they being addressed?
0: Yeah, that's a really good uh, question. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about that because it's, it's a little bit different now, but... Um... Outplacements obviously were something that we saw. Um, School avoidance was a huge issue for most of our schools pre-pandemic. The interesting dynamic now is on virtual learning, a lot of those students who were school avoidant are now thriving, which doesn't mean that it's not an issue. It's just at this point, uh, kids are home, and those who are school avoidant are are comfortable. But that's obviously going to be an issue once we transition back to hybrid or in person. I think some of the other um, areas were escalating student behaviors, um, especially earlier on. We our, our fastest growing population of programs would be elementary. You know, even as far as K through two. Uh, I was just on a call the other day with a district who was looking at their TK and K students, so like pre-K, because they're seeing some significant behaviors uh, there, and they want to provide therapeutic program uh, programming early on. I mean, I think some of the other barriers that I see would be, I talked about the use of the term emergency rooms. You have existing clinical people in the district but they're already overburdened so i've never met somebody who's a social worker or a counselor to say they have tremendous amount of bandwidth so they're already were struggling prior to COVID, and now with the like number of students who are kind of experiencing this like universal trauma there's just there's just too much going on um and i guess one other Thing that I've observed is just scarcity of resources. So you see that in like remote areas. You know, how do you provide therapeutic support when there aren't very many you know LCSWs in a particular county? So that was a really big challenge to your kind of rural schools as well. Um, Just a a scarcity of finding clinical uh, professionals to support students because the need is still there.
1: That makes perfect sense, and and that'll transition us into. Uh, the big question: How has the pandemic changed the landscape of student health needs? And maybe if you could kick off with uh, scarcity of resources, are there more resources now? Is this being uh, acknowledged and addressed uh, on a national level?
0: Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. I mean, if you look at the funding that came out in the CARES Act, obviously all of it or most of it went to to PPE, just because the cost to run a, to open a district. Uh, was a lot more than pre-pandemic days, but if you look at the CARES Act, mental health supports were one of the uses. We did definitely have some of our partners who looked at CARES Act money to fund mental health um, initiatives. One of the things that I think has changed is this, like, receptivity to tele-mental health. I mean, if you think about telemedicine, I think things were trending that way anyway. Some some doctor's appointments, you don't necessarily need to go in person. It's kind of nice and unobtrusive to have a virtual appointment. And now I think people are understanding that teletherapy is a viable way to provide therapeutic support. And I think that's especially um, important for your kind of remote districts because that dearth of clinical talent isn't going to to change necessarily. But now if you have... uh, access to therapeutic supports remotely, you can provide those to students and you can attract clinical talent from anywhere uh, in the state to serve your students, which I think is a a really great benefit. And we saw from our programs in the spring that we ran, which were 100% virtual, really, really significant engagement from our districts, which tells us that and so from our students and families, which tells us that it is a really viable alternative. Obviously, in-person, is not a, it's not a substitute for in-person, but it is something that can be really, really effective uh, with the proper program structure in place.
1: Absolutely. And do you see potentially in 2021 or at some point a hybrid approach where there'll be some onsite resources, but more willingness to reach out to other experts that you couldn't you know, fly in for every uh, meeting?
0: Yeah, you know, I think that that's a really smart um, thought, JW. Uh, I've been thinking about that. You have a lot of districts in certain states that have um, virtual schools, right? And you can see a lot of families that maybe are now pivoting to virtual-only schooling, obviously out of necessity, but maybe long-term, they're thinking, like, that's a viable option for my kid. So in some districts, you could almost have this hybrid approach where you could have therapeutic supports, in the building for kids who are going to attend, but many states have virtual only programs and they're only exploding that you could provide that same level of clinical structure in a tele-therapeutic um, way and still be able to serve those students in districts. So I think it's, it's something we've been talking to several pos- uh, potential districts about, and I think it's definitely a growing need um, that you can see.
1: Absolutely, and and what would maybe be on a bit of good news, hopefully some silver linings that have come out of this uh, this transition in twenty twenty. You know, I I think more than
0: anything, um, you know, and obviously I said it at the beginning. It's it's really this recognition that student mental health is the is as critical as students learning academics. In order to unlock their full potential. And so there were a handful of districts before that were investing in mental health. But I think now everyone, once they get over this, you know, the PPE that they have to buy and maybe the, um, Learning programs and learning management systems, and any sort of Wi-Fi connectivity that they need to to provide access to students, they can now tackle the the mental health challenge, which is almost like the the crisis that's looming. Um, if you look at it, I think it was Whiteboard Advisors did a survey um, of its constituents, and it was you know. Identify, in your opinion, the five most critical but overlooked challenges to the reopening of K-12 schools. And when they asked the question that way, you know, mental health and social emotional learning ranked like number nine to 11 um, out of like maybe 20 issues. So kind of right in the middle. But when the question was asked, which five challenges are likely to have the most lasting impact on K-12 school operations? it was social emotional learning was ranked number three, mental health supports uh, were ranked number four. So p- administrators are dealing with you know, COVID cases and the realities of school reopening right now. But I think that once those are hopefully in the rear view mirror, um, obviously districts are at different phases of the reopening plan, they're gonna be able to turn their attention to student mental health because we've seen all of the statistics about the impact of COVID-19 already on student mental health.
1: Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up social emotional learning uh, because I feel like that's a word I've been familiar with for a number of years being in education technology, but it wasn't really a household term until 2020. Maybe you could help explain to our audience a little bit more about what is social emotional learning and is it the same thing as uh, the mental health uh, you know, programming or how do those interplay together? Sure. So. Um,
0: you know, if you want to define social-emotional learning, one which is from, you know, Castle is social-emotional learning is the process through which children and adults acquire and effectively apply the knowledge, attitudes, and skills necessary to understand and manage emotions, set and achieve positive goals, feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain positive relationships, and make uh, responsible decisions. So, that's sort of um, an overarching definition. Of social emotional learning. I think where you look at the, the interplay between SEL and mental health is, you know, SEL, there's a lot of mindfulness, there's a lot of activities to sort of build um, students' resilience and distress tolerance, distress tolerance and manage emotions. I think um, with mental health supports and programs, this is really focused on individualized therapeutic supports for students to enable them to achieve their uh, potential. So I think there's a there's a huge connection. You know, SEL I see a lot of times is a tier one resource. So you really need to infuse the curriculum with SEL because every student is struggling right now due to the pandemic. And as you escalate or go up the MTSS framework or an RTI framework, there's always a subset of students who are struggling more and providing them with direct clinical supports to help them gain some of those skills, enable them to reset, self-regulate, is really, really important. So there's kind of a a direct connection between the two, but the foundation is really, I think, social-emotional learning.
1: That is a very helpful explanation. I appreciate that. I'm sure my audience does as well. Um, To take it down uh, for a minute, unfortunately, Um, I've got some uh, recent statistics from the CDC uh, that are saying one quarter, 25% of young adults um, have contemplated suicide during the pandemic. What are you, what is your take on that issue?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a staggering statistic. It's one that uh, we talk a lot about in our presentations. Um, You know, we did a, a qualitative study of our clinical teams in the field and, what we observed during Covid nineteen was the trauma that students experienced fall fell into like one of four buckets. You had um, academic stressors for students. You had, you know, family and economic stressors such as like toxic home environments, right? A lot of kids go to school to escape toxic home environments but now they're stuck in those. You had massive job loss, you had food uncertainty. You had challenges that students had with um, social isolation and many of them are still experienced, uh, experiencing that. And then the fourth quadrant was like anxiety about COVID-19. So that was our, our qualitative feedback from our clinical teams in the field over the spring. And I think that you look at the statistics from the CDC and 40% of kids have said, or young adults, 18 to 24 have said that they, there's a mental health condition because of the pandemic. The suicidal ideation is 25%, like one in four, that's just massive anxiety. 30% experienced anxiety because of the pandemic. Substance abuse, 13%. So these really staggering statistics that um, provided some quantitative data to back up what people thought was likely to take place and had kind of qualitatively observed. Um, And it's it's awful to see, Um, but hopefully out of these terrible statistics, we can continue this reprioritization and education to recognizing that People need mental health uh, support. There shouldn't be stigma around mental health. That's one of the big challenges that you see. Is is just because it's not a like a physical impediment, people sort of look at it and say, "Well, this child won't do it," and instead of sort of seeing that they just they can't like. It is as much of an impediment as, you know, someone who has one leg, you're not going to have them uh, expect them to run as fast as someone who has two. You know, someone who has a behavioral or a psychological challenge, that is a true impediment to them being able to achieve their potential.
1: Yeah, and it, and it sounds like um, pre-COVID, there were you were saying there were about 20% of students that have mental health challenges. Now, really, in 2020, this has opened it up to where it's not uh, – just a sub-student population that mental health is necessary for all students uh, and teachers and parents for that matter and administrators. Um, So maybe that's another silver lining that we can take from this that uh, it shouldn't be uh, in a box, you know, just for um, students that have been identified with, uh, you know, mental health challenges, that it really is something that schools and districts should focus on for all students.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. If you think about the consequences of of ignoring mental health, it is the most tragic outcome that can happen. Um, and like we saw with the suicidal ideation being one in four, I mean, if you look at the rate of death by suicide among children in the US, it has tripled in the last decade. Um, there was a, a study by the by JAMA and it was talking about children of nine and 10, the prevalence of suicidal ideation. And even there, 2.4 percent had active ideation with a method and intent and plan that is that is nine and ten-year-olds like that is the scariest to me that is scary statistic i have a nine-year-old and actually a ten-year-old so to think that they're they could be thinking about that um it just it scares me every night whenever i hear challenges that my kids have that's immediately what i think is like the worst possible outcome and how do you recover from that as a school community or as a family. I, I, I don't know how you do.
1: Yeah, well, and that's kind of my next question. Maybe you don't have all the answers, but uh, if you're a school or a district administrator out there or a parent, um, you know. but let's focus on the schools and districts uh, listening to this podcast and you feel like this is an area you really have room to improve on, which is probably the majority of schools and districts out there, where's the best place to start? Yeah, so I think you
0: start with appraising where you're at So I would advocate taking, uh, you know, a multi-tiered systems of support look, right? So an RTI framework where you look at, all right, what are the supports that we have and, and stack rank them in what tier do they fit in? Are they tier one, which is applicable to all students? Are they tier two where in the realm of mental health, you're talking about kids who maybe have mild to moderate mental health challenges or, or episodic mental health challenges? And then what supports do we have for tier three our, our most acute students, the ones with significant behaviors, school avoidance, suicidal ideation. And so I would look at doing maybe a, a needs assessment and an analysis first of where your strengths are. And then I guess from there, If I had to make one recommendation in general, I think starting at the top makes the most sense uh, for a couple of reasons at the tier three level. So first of all, oftentimes there's a uh, financial return on investment. So some students who are sent out of district uh, placements, those can cost sometimes 80 to $100,000 per student inclusive of transportation. If you can return those students and provide that clinical care in district, that is savings that you can apply to plug budget gaps and also to invest in preventative mental health. The other reason I would also start or advocate for tier three is like it's almost a force multiplier because right now your existing clinical teams are probably supporting students at the tier two and tier three level. And there's really huge differences between the level of support. So when we we talk to a lot of districts, there's probably 5% of the population that's taking 80% of the existing staff's time to support. If you can invest in partnering with organizations that can provide that tier three clinical work, now you're creating a bandwidth from your existing clinical teams to, let's say, push in to do SEL for all students, to do professional development uh, for teachers, to be proactive in mental health supports. So without knowing any specific district, um, that's where I would start is look at the top of the pyramid and see where you can uh, apply supports there and then go down.
1: And so Mike, as a follow-up to how the landscape has changed. Uh, I know you guys have recently published a a survey asking educators, you know, based on COVID-19 this fall, uh, what has, what are you seeing? And so maybe you could share a little bit with our audience around uh, that survey and and those results.
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jw. So, We actually wrote an article called Educators Speak on Mental Health, and it was a a national survey on school mental health, COVID-19, and and school reopening. And it was 415 respondents, uh, half of which were like clinicians, counselors, therapists, and districts. We had a lot of teachers. We had a lot of administrators. And the four questions we asked them were, you know, what is the level of student mental health challenges districts are observing, and how does that compare to a year ago? Second, what is the level of teacher mental health challenges districts are observing and how does that compare to a year ago? Uh, Third was what are the actions that districts are taking to address the mental health challenges they're seeing? And four, what gaps are they observing in their district's mental health safety net? And so, you know, there's a few insights that we gained. So kind of insight number one was that student mental health challenges are acute and getting worse. So 83% of respondents reported that they're observing moderate to severe mental health challenges uh, with students and 71% of them reported that challenges are somewhat worse or significantly worse than a year ago. So what we posited from the qualitative data in the spring is bearing fruit in this uh, survey you know, the, the second insight is that educators are struggling just as much students. This is staggering as well. 84% of respondents reported that they're observing moderate to severe mental health challenges with staff, and 85% reported that challenges are somewhat worse or significantly worse than one year ago uh, with staff. The, the third is, you know, districts are relying on a a multi-pronged approach to address student mental health challenges. So we asked them, what are the kind of major initiatives that you've put in place um, in the back to school environment? So two thirds put in social emotional learning curriculum for all students, Um, about half or more than half did professional development for teachers targeted at addressing mental health challenges. Um, Also half, which is really exciting added additional counseling or clinical or therapeutic support. Um, we saw about a third add additional resources for crisis response or crisis management. And then 6%, so a small uh, group added universal mental health screening um, as well. And the the final thing, the final insight um, was that there really still are significant gaps and challenges in having like a mental health safety net. Um, and so the biggest concerns that districts said in supporting the mental health of students during this kind of back to school time period was you know w- number one was worsening condition of students with existing mental health issues that was seventy seven percent said yes um seventy percent said students that weren't on the radar that are now on the radar like so that's a really staggering statistic so i i kind of think about like all of the existing clinical teams who were providing proactive mental health support to some of their students and now you have this like growing population of tier two students which included some students who weren't even on the radar Um, two-thirds said having sufficient staff to support mental health needs Um, a third said the quality of staff supporting mental health needs a big one was funding to support mental health needs and again that's where i would look at um, Tier 3 and focusing on that because you can have a kind of a financial return on investment by bringing clinical care um, in-house. And then the other two were half-said staff capacity and trauma-informed care, and then implementing tele-mental health uh, for students. So these are published in our um, Educator Speak on Mental Health. You can find it on Medium. And then we're also doing a variety of uh, kind of micro-summits across multiple states in the coming weeks. Um, focused on unpacking this data a little bit more, which
1: you can find on you know either my LinkedIn or on, on our website. Perfect. And, and that kind of leads to my next question. If you're a, a school or a district listening to this and you feel like you are doing pretty well, you're trying to address this head on, what more could they be doing? Um, and, and maybe things that wouldn't uh, be intuitive or wouldn't be on their radar uh, kind of at the core. Yeah, well, actually, uh, you said it, JW, a little
0: earlier on, which is, you know, pay attention to self-care. You know, more and more we're seeing data um, and hearing from districts. I think everybody is focused right now on student mental health, as they should be. And a big part of that is also teacher professional development on providing trauma-informed care. But we've been talking to a lot of districts who are really concerned about staff mental health. So their teachers, and I would even say beyond that, um, administrators, you know, we did a we did a presentation for statewide uh, superintendents association in New York about superintendent self-care um, because you see a lot of superintendents leaving that position. Um, you you see them working crazy hours and sometimes almost wearing that as a badge of honor that they haven't taken any vacation and it's reading leading to high burnout rate. Um, we called the we called the session like caring for the caregivers because all of these leaders in a school, they have responsibilities at home that are extremely stressful, but then they have to be leaders of the school community as well. So it really is important that districts look at self-care measures for their staff and and also for their leaders.
1: Absolutely, um, and to all of those listening that are a teacher, administrator, thank you for everything you're doing. I can't imagine a more stressful time to be uh, a teacher or a school administrator or district administrator. Um, We know you're carrying a very heavy burden right now along with our first responders. And so thank you and take these words of wisdom that you've got to take care of yourself uh, before you can take care of everybody else. And I know you know that, but you can't hear it too many times. Um, And in our podcast uh, over recent episodes, I forget which one it was, uh, we have seen kind of a back to basics approach Um, as far as before getting to the business of running the district or school or or the classroom, uh, people are now taking time to just honestly ask, how are you doing? How are things going? And have those really kind of deeper conversations that weren't happening uh, in 2019 often. Um, And so is that something that that you've been seeing on your end as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. In district after district that I've talked to, um, especially ones that are uh, virtual, you know, engaging students right away and starting the day with like a, a, a social emotional type of lesson is really the way that most of them are starting. And I think that that's the right approach. I think uh, academics are important. Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, but at the same time, right now in in what we're living in, the most important thing is and you know teaching students resiliency and self-determination and you know just empathy and positivity and and all of those things that define uh sel and i think that a district starting that way every single morning or infusing that into curriculum is is sending that message that social emotional learning and student mental health and staff mental health is valued by our district, and and I'm seeing it more and more, and I think it's awesome and a huge credit to K-12 school districts across the country.
1: Absolutely. I think the key word there you said was integrated into the day-to-day. Don't have it as a separate component that then you forget about an hour later. Um, Well, we're coming up on our time, so I want to end on a high note here, uh, or a relatively high note if possible. (laughs) Uh, Give us us a recent success story of a district that uh, um, uh, Effective School Solutions is working with. Sure. Um.
0: So, I I think that this district and you know I'm going to keep the name anonymous, but I think it's it's an awesome story. Um. We started partnering with this district March first, right? So, plans to provide a therapeutic support program to its behavioral students and its middle schools. We're really excited. They're really excited. And then what happens? Ten days later, the world stops. And to this district's credit, um. We pushed through with them, Uh, we were able to adapt programming on the fly to deliver remote therapeutic care, including um, all of the intake assessments. So when, when we start working with the district, we do like a clinical interview of the students. So with our existing partners, it was very difficult, obviously, to transition over to virtual because we had been doing so much in person, but that was what everybody had to do. But here was a district where we didn't have an established program, and it had just launched 10 days ago. And we were able to work with them to get to census, which is you know com- completely fill the cohort over the coming weeks and months. And it has been virtual ever since because this district is still 100% virtual. And they're actually looking at expanding to two additional middle schools even right now. And I think that that's a testament to the tremendous leadership that is in the district. And of course, obviously, we feel like we've embedded a great team there and supported this partnership. But I've just been very, very impressed that in spite of those obstacles, they have almost like doubled down and said, like, look, this is exactly why. This is the time that we need to put mental health supports in our district. Um, So I I was really I've been super impressed with this district.
1: That's a great story to end on. There you go. Well, uh, to my audience, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Uh, Please listen back to uh, past episodes and look forward to future episodes next week. To uh, my guest today, Mike Roseman, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Absolutely. And don't forget to always keep learning.